Good morning, everyone. It's good to be here. Um, Last week, Judy said, Satan's goal is to destroy the church and discredit the name of Jesus. And what's wonderful about the book of Acts is despite that truth, God's people endured with joy and courage, and the gospel continued to spread. Today, we're going to see one man in particular who preaches an epic monologue that places the God of glory on full display. And unlike, Steve, and unlike Satan, this man wants the gospel to advance, so Christ is proclaimed to the ends of the earth. On that note, we will look at the big picture of what is going on in Acts 6 and 7. The goal for today is to understand that in Acts 6, we will see that the main task of the early church was to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to a fallen world. But if discord happens within the church, it could halt the spread of the gospel. We will cover two points in Acts 6. The gospel will spread and the face of an angel. In Acts 7, we will see Stephen's brilliant sermon methodically tear open the sinful hearts of the religious leaders, exposing their hypocrisy and the rejection of the righteous one, which resulted in Stephen's death, but also the launch of the church to spread the gospel. This chapter also reminds us not to harden our hearts against God's grace. In chapter 7, we will also cover two points, rejection of the righteous one and imitating his Savior. Let's open our Bibles to Acts 6. Point A is the gospel will spread. Despite the flogging the apostles endured in the previous chapter, the gospel continued to spread as they kept preaching Christ. The church had about 20,000 people that had occupied the temple to worship God. The church is flourishing, and when we get to Acts 6, the church needs to get organized. They were on the brink of spreading the gospel to the ends of the world, which included the Gentiles. However, there is always resistance when it comes to Christ building his church. Persecution came against them, opposition, imprisonment, verbal abuse, deception, and beatings, and it failed. The message spread, many repented. Another obstacle that can slow or prevent the gospel from spreading is when the seeds of discord are planted in the church. Let's read Acts 6.1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. A conflict had arisen between two cultures represented in the early church. There were external threats to the church and internal threats that caused division along ethnic and social lines, which could have become a huge obstacle to a church still in its infancy. There was an undercurrent of secret whispering that became loud enough that the apostles became aware of the situation. Caring for widows is important to the Lord. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble 
and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. A sweet widow told me, it is a loneliness because in my case, not being able to care for my husband, a sense of where I belong and what to do because that changed immediately. A feeling of emptiness because my life for 48 years was as a wife and how to be his helper is gone. A good reminder for us to pray for the widows in our church and to reach out to them. In verse two, we read, so the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God to serve tables. The serving of tables could refer to meals or the table where the coins were distributed. Whatever it was, the apostles couldn't neglect or leave behind the word of God to serve tables. They had a mandate by the Lord. They needed to study the word, devote themselves to prayer, and to preach the word so they could serve the word to the people. I'm thankful for the pastors at our church as they take the time to devote themselves to the word of God, to prayer, and are faithful to teach us each week. Our pastors preach a transcendent message, the same one the early church had preached, that has no regards to ethnicity, language, tradition, customs, or socioeconomic status. What about us? Are we taking the time to study God's word, to prayer, to serving the word to those around us, such as coworkers, friends, family, strangers? Are we encouraging the body by what the Lord is teaching us? One commentator said, it is not how many times you go through the Bible, but how many times the Bible goes through you. It's dangerous for our souls when we stop going before the Lord in prayer, when we stop being in the word, and we, when we stop repenting and fellowshipping with one another. Let's be women that delight being in God's word and with his people. So seven believing men were selected by the congregation who were of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, pure men, and gave them the task to care for the Hellenistic widows in the church. The church was united in this decision. As a result, the word of God spread and some of the priests became obedient to the faith. These aren't the chief priests or the Sanhedrin, but as Pastor John said, the rank and file priests who ministered in the temple. So no matter what the, um, Satan threw at the early church, the gospel continued to spread and continues to spread even now. Point B in our outline is the face of an angel. As we move ahead in the text, we see Stephen as the bridge between the two giants of the faith, Peter and Paul. Stephen was the trigger that shot the church into the world. Even though his ministry was brief, he had the courage and confidence to say and do what he knew was right, regardless of the outcome. He was not just a servant who cared for widows. He was a great, powerful, effective preacher. We know this from verse 10 in Acts 6. 
but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Since these men in the synagogue were no match for the wisdom given to Stephen by the Holy Spirit, they attack him falsely by accusing Stephen of blasphemy and getting him arrested. Luke makes a point in verse 15 to say, and fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. This was a play of supernatural radiance attesting to all who beheld his countenance, the divine calm of the spirit within. Stephen manifested the holiness and glory of God, which one only gets from being in the presence of God. Those false charges were answered when God put his glory on Stephen's face. Moses was the only man in history that ever had the glory of God on his face. And in a way, God rebuked the council because by putting his glory on Stephen's face, God showed the approval of the new covenant and its messenger in the face of Israel. Let's look at the sermon by Stephen. Point C, the rejection of the righteous one. This text is the golden thread of God's redemptive plan to point to the one true deliverer, Christ. Sometimes we gloss over this portion of scripture because they're familiar stories. We want to jump to Stephen's stoning, grieve that the Sanhedrin were so cruel, then move to Paul. Paul had an amazing conversion. He wrote 13 books in the New Testament, and he's beloved by many saints. But God causes us to pause and look at the life of Stephen, who had only been a believer for maybe a few weeks or months. He performed signs and wonders, yet he wasn't an apostle. Stephen was an ordinary man that preached Christ and walked faithfully with his Savior until his final breath. He lived upon the word of God, knowing he could trust the one that held his life in his sovereign hands. Stephen is revealing to the Sanhedrin that throughout Israel's history, they have rejected the deliverers God has sent to save them. And the one that is the shadow of all the deliverers, the righteous one, the Sanhedrin rejected and had murdered. The one that would give them eternal life and forgive their sins if they repented and believed. They didn't want Christ. They put their love of sin before God. How many times, even today, have we put our sin above God? I'm thankful that we can go before him and seek forgiveness. Spurgeon said, however weak we are, however poor, however little our faith, or however small our grace may be, our names are still written on his heart. Nor shall we lose our share in Jesus' love. Stephen is showing the Sanhedrin, and by extension to the readers today, God's sovereignty, his faithfulness, his mercy, his holiness, his forgiveness, his grace, and his patience. The Lord is teaching some of the greatest truths about himself in this text 
and truths about ourselves that we at times wish he wouldn't expose before his all-seeing eyes. Nothing is hidden from him. This text has weighed on my heart for weeks because of the reality that was before me as I read and prayed. It has changed me, and it's almost hard to put into words. But I do know I have a deeper love for my Savior, a deeper trust in him, as he's shown me that I do not need to fear death because I will be with him, to not fear man and preach the resurrected Christ. Because even if everything in this world was made right, it still does not change the fact that people need Jesus. It's about salvation. It's about souls. This chapter has brought me to my knees in repentance and praise to God that he would take any thought to reveal himself to me or anyone else, rebellious sinners. I can't help think of Psalm 8. What is man that you take thought of him? I pray as we march through this text to remember not to harden our hearts against God's grace, to pray for unbelievers since true peace is only found in Christ and not in this world. Stephen is before the highest Jewish court standing alone. He has no lawyer to defend him. He defends himself against the charges of blasphemy and turns the tables on the Sanhedrin by indicting them, which results in his death. The council consisted of 71 men led by the high priest. The Sanhedrin had thought they had put an end to Christ by killing him. But God is using this early church to proclaim the message that Christ is alive, Christ is the Messiah, Christ is the Savior, God has provided redemption in his Son. They can't silence the believers as thousands upon thousands have come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stephen was charged with blasphemy against God, Moses, the law, and the temple. Let's look at the first accusation. Accusation number one, blasphemy against God. Stephen takes the severest accusation first, which makes sense because if the God of glory isn't precious to him, then Moses, the law, and the temple won't be either. God is the one that had called Abraham out of Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. We see this in verse 2 of Acts 7. And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. The phrase, the God of glory, is used only one other time in Psalm 29, 3. Let's read this wonderful psalm. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, 
The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everything says, glory. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. This is an awesome pronouncement of who God is. This title is a full account of the almighty, holy, sovereign God, which displays his majesty and separateness from sinful man. Abraham was a pagan idolater living in a pagan culture with no righteousness in him for God to reveal himself to him and make a covenant with him. God didn't choose Abraham because he was holy, but to make Abraham holy. In verse 5 of Acts 7, but he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give him as a possession and to his descendants after him. The nation of Israel owes its existence to this gracious promise to make them a great nation out of Abraham, a former idolater. God would give Israel the land of Canaan, Even though his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land for years, God would judge that nation. In verse 8, we see the covenant promise. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob to the 12 patriarchs. Stephen shows that he believes in the God of glory. He believes Abraham's God, and he understands the promise God made to Abraham. So, are you known by the God of glory? He sovereignly called Abraham from his idols and poured his grace on him so he and his people could worship the one true God. For those here today, God did the same for us. In his kindness, opened our eyes and ears to repent and believe. He called us out of pagan idolatry so we would worship the true and living God and proclaim the gospel to the world. In verse 9, he begins his first charge against the Sanhedrin by talking about the life of Joseph. God had set Joseph apart despite the jealousy of the patriarchs and evil of selling him into slavery. The patriarchs weren't as honorable as the Jews thought them to be since they rejected God's choosing of Joseph. His brothers didn't understand that God had a plan for Joseph as he was set out for a special blessing. Reuben, who was the eldest, but he had fortified his birthright because of his sin in Genesis 35. So the blessing and the inheritance went to Joseph. It belonged to him. In his, dream, in his dreams, Joseph had said he would rise above all his brothers. This made them despise him more, which led them to lie to their father Jacob 
and tell them that his beloved Joseph was killed and not the truth that they sold him into slavery. The patriarchs were the blasphemers because the scripture said the birthright belonged to Joseph. They went against God by selling his chosen one into slavery. They rejected Joseph the first time because their hard hearts didn't understand that God was using Joseph as their deliverer, not only to prevent them from starving, but bringing them to Egypt, according to God's sovereign plan. We see through Joseph the nation of Israel's rejection to God's plan. They are the blasphemers, but despite their rebellion against God, we see the faithfulness of God to Joseph and his people, and he didn't forsake them in the midst of their suffering. In verse 13, it says, On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. Stephen shows that the patriarchs rejected the deliverer Joseph, God had chosen, and the Jews of Jesus' time rejected Christ as well. Jesus and Joseph were both accepted by Gentiles. They both were humbled and then exalted, and they were both rejected the first time and not the second. We also see that God's hand was in all the details that surrounded the life of Joseph and the nation of Israel. And we can remember to trust God and not rebel against his plan for our lives. We can trust that we are held in the wise and gracious hand of our great God. Accusation number two, blasphemy against Moses. In verse 17, we read, but as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. This was the Abrahamic covenant that God made with Abraham to have a possession, a land, and descendants. We know another leader arose in Egypt that didn't know about Joseph and despised the people of Israel, so he had all the baby boys murdered. However, God protected Moses through Pharaoh's daughter as she raised him as her own in verse 21. Moses was learned in all wisdom and a mighty man of words. At the age of 40, he came to see his people, and in verses 24 to 25, it says, And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver by his hand, but they did not understand. He thought his brethren would see that he was a deliverer for his people, a defender of his people, and the one to relieve their pain and suffering. He tried again the next day when he saw his brethren fighting and tried to help. The one brethren asked if he wanted to kill him like he had the Egyptian. Stephen is showing a pattern throughout their history that they have rebelled against God and they have rejected the deliverers God has sent them. They rejected Moses the first time, just like they rejected the Messiah the first time. Moses fled, and after 40 years, 
the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to him in a burning bush. And God told him not only to remove his sandals because Moses is standing on holy ground, but in verse 34, God says, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. Yahweh had come down to deliver his people, not Moses' people, but his people from their grief, from their oppression. God is faithful to his covenant promise to Israel, even when they were continually unfaithful to him. And he is faithful to us when we are unfaithful to him. God is a promise keeper, kind, tender, and he hears. Don't ever think God has abandoned or forgotten you. He hasn't and he never will. Our precious Savior is interceding on our behalf all the time. From the book Gentle and Lowly, the author says, Here we remember that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. The Jesus who reached out and cleansed messy sinners reaches into our souls and answers our half-hearted plea for mercy with the mighty, invincible cleansing of one who cannot bear to do otherwise. In other words, Christ's heart is not far off from us despite his presence in heaven. Amen. One last point before we move to the third accusation in verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Stephen isn't subtle in implying that the prophet is Jesus, the one they rejected and murdered. Their spiritual pride and ignorance blinded them to the connection Stephen was making to them. Accusation number three, blasphemy against the law. We move from the God of glory, Joseph, Moses, and now the law. And Moses was the one that received the law from God on Mount Sinai. Even though God was faithful to them, protected them, displayed his sovereignty, showed abundant grace to them, Israel still rebelled against the honor of God, the glory of God, the justice of God, and the righteousness of the everlasting eternal God. They didn't love his law. They didn't love the word that is living and powerful. They didn't want to obey his law. They had forgotten Yahweh. The people of Israel turned their hearts away from God and turned their hearts back to Egypt. In verses 39 to 40, whom our fathers would not obey, but repudiated, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. The God that had made a promise to Abraham, the God that was faithful to save his people from starving, the God that delivered his people from 400 years of bondage and parted the Red Sea with signs and wonders, they turned from. God has revealed his character. He has invited a relationship through the revelation of his name. But God's chosen people, Israel, rejoiced in the works of their hands and paraded themselves like a bunch of carnal men and women 
worshiping a false God instead of the one true and living God. Yahweh's people turned their loyalty away from him to something that would never satisfy or bring true joy. I couldn't help see myself when I read this. I know God has called me out of life of adultery, and I'm thankful. But I see how my heart is prone to wander from him and forget his promises, where I fix my eyes on the world instead of my blessed Savior. And yet, in his kindness, he leads me back to himself. John Owen said in his book, Indwelling Sin in Believers, whatever you are doing, the law of sin is always there. Men rarely consider what a dangerous companion is always at home with them. When in company, when alone, by night or by day, sin is with them. I'm glad we can cry out to the Lord for forgiveness, and he is faithful to forgive us. Verse 43 sums up the first commandment of not having other gods before him. The people of Israel didn't have a broken or contrite heart. Their worship was empty as they loved themselves instead of Yahweh. They had no desire to obey since they had violated every command of God. They are the blasphemers as they put their sin of disobedience before God. Our last accusation, accusation number four, blasphemy against the temple. Let's read verse 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of temple testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. Stephen lets them know that he isn't against the temple. It started with a tent to give testimony in the wilderness and was a testimony of God. The tent was an earthly symbol of God's glory and character. Stephen challenged the Sanhedrin's attitude toward the temple. They boasted in the temple, believing it gave them special access to God, just like the Jews in Jeremiah's day had done. God said through the prophet, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and to go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered? only to go on and do all these abominations? Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, There is nothing more insulting to the holy name of God than to profess him with your lips and deny him in your life. If there's anyone here denying Christ with their life, please repent and seek forgiveness. Yahweh will not be mocked. The Jews in Jeremiah's day and the Sanhedrin may have looked the part, said the right words, even know the scriptures well, and faithfully offer sacrifices to, the God, to God, but they were not true worshipers of the living God. Their hearts were far from the Lord as they worshiped the temple and not the God of the temple. Worship is about Yahweh. We need to revere, honor, and adore him. 
not simply because of what he does for us, but for who he is. This worship will produce a change in heart, which should give us a love and a desire to obey him. When the Israelites fail to worship Yahweh, and when we fail to worship him, it's idolatry. He is owed absolute worship. True worship of Yahweh isn't false or forced. We go willingly, faithfully, and joyfully. The Sanhedrin are the blasphemers. Their hearts are wicked because they worship the temple and not the Lord. Do you worship your church rather than the God of glory? In verses 49 to 50, God says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which which made all these things? The Lord has shown from Abraham to Moses with the burning bush and to the temple that God is not bound to one place. He isn't confined to man-made objects. He is to be worshipped in spirit and truth anywhere, everywhere, and by anyone because we must recognize his holy presence and that he is the God of glory that sits as king forever. The true blasphemers. Verses 51 to 53. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and did not keep it. He doesn't hold back his indictment against them. Stiff-necked, a person unwilling to yield. It was painful for the Sanhedrin to hear an ordinary man accuse them of being uncircumcised in heart in hearts and ears, as they prided themselves in their circumcision. The people of Israel showed their repeated pattern of rejecting the deliverers God had sent them. Joseph's brothers rejected him the first time, but later discover he was their savior from death by starvation. Israel, in slavery in Egypt, at first rejected Moses but later the man God used to be their deliverer and leader. And now they had rejected and murdered the very one whom God had sent as Messiah and Savior. My heart was broken when I read these words, because that was me until God saved my soul. And that was you until God saved your soul. And that is still some of you now. If some of you are in the latter group, please stop resisting the Holy Spirit. God offers forgiveness. Even in the indictment against the Sanhedrin, God is offering another chance to repent, and he offers the same to us as well. There was a tragedy at the school where my girls go a few weeks ago and where I coach track. Two young boys died when a driver hit them at a crosswalk. The eldest boy was a student at the school. The driver of the vehicle is a parent at the school. I gave her, um, I sent her a card, 
and I told her that I would be praying for her and to let her know that some may have a hard time forgiving you, but there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Isn't that the gospel? The Holy Spirit seeks to speak to the heart of the unbeliever and lead him or her to God. The Holy Spirit is incredibly patient and persistent, but it's possible to resist all the Spirit's pleadings as we discover in Genesis 6-3, where God said, my spirit will not contend with man forever. Let's look at their response. Point D, our last point, imitating his Savior. Verse 54. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. Stephen's words were like a saw going back and forth on the hearts of these hearers, going deeper and deeper until they couldn't take it any more. In Acts 2, the Jews ask about salvation. They don't ask a question here. They don't repent. They don't cry out to Yahweh for mercy. The council is full of rage. Stephen exposed who they truly were before a holy and righteous God. We have seen the escalation of opposition towards God's people in each chapter imprisonment, verbal abuse, flogging, and finally, death. The only thing that would satiate the council was Stephen's blood. But his blood and the blood of other martyrs is the seed of the church. His blood made the gospel spread. The Sanhedrin had heard the truth. They heard Jesus' teaching and witnessed his miracles. They heard the preaching of the apostles and seen the miracles they performed, but they still resisted the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're sitting in church week after week, hearing the truth and resisting the Holy Spirit. Please don't reject the beauty of salvation for the ugliness of sin that leads to death. So the council was cut to the quick and they gnashed their teeth. Gnashing of teeth originally meant to eat greedily with a noise like a wild beast. We get a taste of hell by their reaction. Any person that dies in their sin rejecting Christ will gnash their teeth and weep. There isn't remorse, only anger that, they, that will never cease because of their sin and anger toward God for sending them there. The slogan, rest in peace, is a lie. There is no peace for those that reject Christ. Stephen saw their hatred for him, yet he remained calm and confident as he reflected the glory of God throughout this entire time. He was full of the Spirit, and God was kind to show Stephen his glory and Christ standing at his right hand as he stared intently into heaven. We start with the glory of God on Stephen's face, Stephen talks about the God of glory, and now heaven is open, and Stephen sees the glory of God and speaks about it. He can't keep it to himself. Would you? He says in verse 56, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. First, 
Stephen makes a confession by saying, the son of man. No one else tried to call Jesus this. Stephen spoke about him the way Jesus speaks of himself. Ladies, we shouldn't be afraid to speak the truth about Christ. The Lord gave Stephen the courage to stand before the Sanhedrin. He will give us the courage to proclaim Christ. Second, Stephen saw God manifested in light, the invisible God whom no one can see and live, and Christ standing at the right hand of the glory of God. He is seeing Jesus. He is seeing his precious Savior. He is telling them this. The one who they had killed is alive. He is alive. The righteous one is alive. Behold. But... Verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. I wrote, wow, hard hearts on the side of my Bible. Another opportunity for them to repent. Another opportunity for them to cry out for mercy. But they don't. They cover their ears. They reject the Messiah again. They reject the only one that can provide them eternal life. They put themselves over the call of the Holy Spirit to repent. They don't want God's truth. The truth that exposed and revealed the depth of their sin, the depth of their hatred to God, they claimed to worship and love. Please don't stop asking the Lord to show if there's any wicked way in you. It's a blessing when God reveals to us areas in our lives that are not pleasing to him. Don't ignore the hand of the Holy Spirit when he convicts you of your sin. Ask the Lord to continue to give you a teachable and humble heart and continue to repent. My sister is addicted to meth and living on the streets. I saw her one day here in the valley pushing a cart and screaming at no one in particular, um, which is never easy to see and and grieves my heart. Um, I saw her again at Starbucks, and I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. I don't know how to help her. So instead of talking to her, I just left, and I regret that. I told a friend And she told me to thank the Lord for his mercy because he's given her another day to repent. I saw her again and I thanked the Lord that she has another opportunity to cry out to him. So please don't stop praying for your loved ones. Please don't. Praise God that he has given them another opportunity to seek forgiveness. So the Sanhedrin rushed at him with an uncontrollable rage and drove him out of the city, stoning him. They cast him out of the city as though he was some sick or evil man. Stephen suffered the same way his savior suffered. We will suffer the same. We will suffer for Christ in the same way. The witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. He was the ringleader in Stephen's murder. After reading Paul's epistles, I have to think that Stephen's life impacted how Paul preached and what he wrote. 
Stephen's life has impacted me. Paul went from a man that approved the killing of Stephen, proved the killing of Stephen to proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth. A great reminder that God can save anyone he chooses. God will use you, and it's not always easy or comfortable, but it will be glorious. One of the greatest joys should be that redeemed sinners are being used by the author of life to proclaim to the world that there is salvation in no other name except the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us ask the Lord to enable us to endure all things for his glory with courage. As we get to the end of this passage, we cannot miss the similarities between Stephen's words at his death and Christ's at his death. Jesus, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Stephen, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When Stephen prays for the Lord to receive his spirit and to not hold this sin against him, none of his friends are there singing hymns to him. No one is reading scripture to him or holding his hand. Rocks are being pelted at him as he is dying a horrible death. At first, this bothered me because he was loved, as we will see in the next chapter. Then I realized he had something better. He was beholding the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God to receive him home. And I'm sure our Lord said, well done, good and faithful slave. The trials that the Lord brings our way are not in vain. We have his word to govern us, his Holy Spirit to comfort us, and we have the honor of going before our blessed Savior in prayer. Just like Stephen, we can remember that we are in the hands of God, and since we are being held by our Lord, we can trust him with our life. In our trials, are we responding in a way that honors the Lord? Are we letting his word govern us or our emotions? And since that can be a struggle in different seasons, let's ask the Lord to help us as we walk faithfully with Christ in this fallen world. I found it interesting that as stones were being hurled at Stephen, he prays for his enemies. Who does that? A man who trusted God completely. Just as Jesus trusted in his father, a man filled with the Holy Spirit that he knew he would be in the presence of his savior. A man that understood that souls needed to be saved. A man focused on preaching Christ until his dying breath. And he did, because after saying this, he fell asleep. Stephen was kept by God until the end. And I had to say like Paul, for I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. His death had a huge impact. It launched a persecution where the gospel was preached to the ends of the earth. Augustine said, the church owes Paul. The church owes Paul to the prayer of Stephen. I met a gas station attendant 
uh, wearing a mask that said, Jesus loves you. I'd asked him how long he had been a believer, and he said, four years. He was in jail and began reading the Bible, and the Lord opened his eyes to believe. We chatted for a bit, and I told him, if I never see you again on earth, I will see you in heaven. His eyes lit up. I got goosebumps, um, when, because not only will I be in heaven with the Lord, I will see the gas station attendant and Stephen, a man full of faith and trust in the risen Savior, a man that responded like Christ, a man that trusted in Christ and not in himself, and a man that spoke like Christ until his final breath. Stephen was a man that defended the faith. We need to do the same. He knew God's word. We need to know God's word. He was courageous. We need to be courageous. We must stand for the truth. I know it isn't easy and it can be scary. And I'm talking to myself when I say these things. But we must trust Christ with our lives. We must preach Christ. We are a beacon of light to a world that is dying in their sins. A world that needs the word of God to lay open the inward parts of their hearts and the secrets of their souls. So Lord willing, it will cause them to repent. And I, we, must pray more. We saw in Acts 6 that the main task of the early church was to preach Christ, preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to a fallen world. But if discord happens within the church, it could halt the spread of the gospel. In Acts 7, we saw Stephen's brilliant sermon methodically tear open the sinful hearts of the religious leaders, exposing their hypocrisy and rejection of the righteous one, which resulted in his death, but also the launch of the church to spread the gospel. And this chapter reminds us not to harden our hearts against God's grace. So I'll ask the question again. Are you known by the God of glory? As we close, we are part of that history that is leading us to the return of Christ. Believers are part of Christ's victory march to proclaim the good news that he saves people from their sins, whether they come to faith or not. His name will be lifted up. His name will be remembered if they love or hate him. Everyone will know the name of Jesus. God is calling people to repent. God is calling people from their pagan idolatry to follow him. Ladies, praise God every day that God has saved your souls. And as Paul said, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jew and folly to the Gentile. God is absolutely sovereign over salvation and only he can break the hard heart and cause the sinner to repent. He only asks us to faithfully proclaim the gospel. So let's do that until he takes us home. Let's pray. Dear Lord, you are the God of glory. There is no one like you. And I do pray, Lord, that you do the work that only you can do through the truth of scripture. Thank you for all these women that are here and online, Lord God, listening. And I do pray that what is said goes forth to the ends of the earth. May their time together be pleasing in your sight. Amen.